Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Irish history is awash with names, issues, contradictions and passionate characters. Focus the microscope on one period, such as that before the 1916 Rising, and the historian is faced with perhaps the most concentrated series of names, issues, contradictions and passionate characters than in any other space of Irish history since. In this episode we will seek to introduce you to the major players the important groups and important figures, and how they interacted and sought to improve Ireland in their own way. It is the legacy that the individuals, organisations and unsolved issues leave behind that becomes such nourishing fodder for those that follow in 1916. If you're ready to begin, then I am delighted to have you. Welcome to the mini-series. When Diplomacy Fails presents 1916 A special centenary miniseries Exploring the context, characters and controversies Of the most significant act In Ireland's modern history The 1916 Rising In the face of the men whose warnings you had angrily resented a few years previously, you came down to this house to concede in an hour of alarm what you had refused in the time of tranquillity. Is this narration true or false? Am I or am I not reciting facts known to you all? What do those facts show? That, by some malign fatality, some calamitous coincidence, if nothing more, you scoff at men like my colleagues and myself, who beseech you to be just in time. You resist concession in time of calm, and yield it only in the face of real or fancied peril. Timothy Daniel Sullivan, Irish MP for West Meath, speaking in a House of Commons session of January 1878. I must further say that we have proposed this measure because Ireland wants to make her own laws. It is not enough to say that you are prepared to make good laws. You are prepared to make good laws for the colonies. You did make good laws for the colonies, according to the best of your light. The colonists were totally dissatisfied with them. You accepted their claim to make their own laws. Ireland, in our opinion, has a claim not less urgent. William Gladstone, 
speaking during a House of Commons speech imploring the passing of a Home Rule Bill, 1893. The weakness of the Rising was ultimately its strength. It was imaginatively planned, with artistic vision and with exceptional military incompetence. Historian F.X. Martin, writing in 1967. My mission is to pacify Ireland, was the phrase uttered by William Gladstone on the 1st of December 1868. It was to be a mission that would cost him the premiership of Great Britain, the leadership of the Liberal Party, the unity of that party and his health as a British statesman. It left him vulnerable to accusations from his political opponents that he didn't understand or care for the vested interests Britain had in keeping Ireland tied to Great Britain. Yet Gladstone never relented, never let go of the idea of relinquishing political power of the island of Ireland to the Irish. By today's standards, the mission Gladstone sought does not seem especially radical. Gladstone was not suggesting that Ireland be set free from the British Empire altogether. He was merely seeking to acquire for Ireland the kind of political autonomy within that empire to make its own local regional laws cultivate its own cultural customs and above all rule its own affairs from a parliament in Dublin. This latter claim in particular was a mission summarised into two words, Home Rule. It is the idea of Home Rule, its adherents, subjectors, alternatives and sympathisers that will occupy us in this episode. So let's begin. Ireland was the neighbour of the greatest empire in the world, at that time of Gladstone's phrase, and a contingent part of it. Paradoxically, it was also one of the poorest places in Europe to live, with the worst urban slums imaginable and an infant mortality rate that remained well above the European average. In a sense, it was the awkward cousin of the British Isles. While Scotland had sent its men to administer and evangelise, the English had set themselves to conquer, and the Welsh had... David Lloyd George, the English had emigrated, served in the armed forces or stayed at home to scratch out a meagre existence. The Irish also had a tendency to reproduce like nobody's business. Up until the awful famine experience of the late 1840s, Ireland had the fastest growing population of any western country and counted nearly 8.5 million people across its ruddy island. That same famine killed at least one million and caused a further million to leave for the UK or USA. The impact wrought upon the Irish by the mere failure of the potato crop and the diseases that followed were profound. In fact, some historians are still coming up with theories about how impactful the famine calamity actually was in Irish history. Claims abound that it led to a greater sense of national feeling among the Irish, that it compelled them to look to their heritage, or that it made them more determined to seek retribution or justice from Britain. Ever since a failed uprising in 1798, the Parliament in Dublin had been closed, and all Irish MPs who wanted to push through reforms would have to travel to Westminster and sit there in London. Ending this new union, or at least altering it so that Ireland would have its own Parliament in Dublin and be able to rule itself, would require the passing of legislation in London, Westminster, and the convincing of British MPs that the Irish could be trusted again to manage their own local affairs. 
Those that sought this change formed the Home Rule Party in 1873, which as its central aim wished to implement Home Rule in Ireland in a parliament based from Dublin, an act which would free Irish MPs from the practice of travelling to Westminster, and would lead in time, they hoped, to more legislative independence. The Home Rule Party, or League, grew in importance over the decade following its creation, thanks in part to its dramatic leadership under Charles Stuart Parnell, a radically brilliant Anglo-Irish Protestant nationalist devoted to his cause, and who we in Ireland today have named a lot of things after. Another thing that the Home Rule Party had going for it at this critical time was that, essentially, it was a critical time in British politics. A hung parliament in the 1885 general election meant that if William Gladstone wished to continue as Prime Minister, he would need more political support. In return for promising to implement Home Rule in the near future with a series of bills, the Home Rule Party, now rebranded as the Irish Parliamentary Party, pledged their support to Gladstone's administration. The problem from this arrangement did not derive from its apparent shakiness. Instead, the danger was to be found in the fact that Gladstone did not have the support of the entirety of the Liberal Party in his quest to bring about Home Rule. Many of the Liberal Party's most prominent MPs were wholly opposed to the idea, on the grounds that it would free the Irish from their loyalties to London and lead that island down a path of eventual full independence from British control. Only the year after the arrangement between the Liberals and Irish Parliamentary Party was agreed on, the Liberal Party dramatically split into two camps. One supporting Gladstone's drive for home rule remained behind, while the rest, a considerable chunk of the Liberal Party's best speakers and statesmen, broke away to form the Liberal Unionist Party. This group of notables was led by the veteran Liberal MP, the Duke of Devonshire, and he had an axe to grind, a personal axe, to grind with all semblances of Irish independence. Less than four years before, in 1882, the Duke's brother Frederick had been murdered in Dublin by a fringe group of Irish Republicans as he set out to fulfil his Chief Secretary for Ireland role. Parnell himself condemned the murders as an impediment to political progress almost as soon as they had been learned of, but the Duke of Devonshire never saw eye to eye with either Parnell or Parnell's colleagues after that. From 1882 onwards, the Duke had slowly distanced himself from Gladstone because of his Irish plans, and in 1886 he made the decision to strike out on his own, with a number of his colleagues determined to follow him. Thus, Irish home rule, a seemingly small issue in the sea of British politics and important politicians of the Victorian era, actually played a huge role in defining it, and here's why. With the break caused in the Liberal Party by the Home Rule crisis, Gladstone found that he never again had the numbers to dominate his Conservative rivals as he once had. The Home Rule situation, in other words, had led to a turning point in British politics and society. But let's put that turning point in context. For the 27 years since 1859 when the Liberal Party had been created, that party had been in power for a total of 18 years, a fairly good result. After the split over Home Rule in 1886, though, the Conservatives, buoyed by the support given by the Liberal Unionists, and eventually joined by them in coalition, would turn the tables. 
From 1886 until 1905, for a period of 19 years, the Liberals would only serve in government for a total of three years. The fact that this meant Britain was to be led by the Conservatives for nearly two whole decades is significant. Although the desire for change had emanated out of the island of Ireland, it had worked its way up to the highest echelons of British power, to the point that it had a profound impact on how Britain was to govern itself for the next 20 years. Critically for us, once 1905 ended the Liberal drought and a new Liberal government took power with much enthusiasm and positivity, the Home Rule crisis hadn't gone away. It had merely receded into the background. Before long, there would be another hung parliament and another political crisis that would lend itself to the Irish Parliamentary Party once more. The Liberal Unionist Party, which held the balance of power in the House of Commons, was, from the late 1880s until the First World War, also a considerable product of the Home Rule crisis as well. In a way, it could be said that Home Rule created the Liberal Unionist Party. As a party, they were cautious, but also imperialistic. They were reserved, but also expansionist. They were reformist, but also conservative. Above all, though, the members of this new liberal unionist bloc were fundamentally, utterly and totally opposed to the idea of Irish home rule. By their very label, unionist meaning holding together the union of Great Britain and Ireland, they defined themselves as opposed to any changes in the way Ireland was governed. Thus, Gladstone's attempts to implement home rule had not only failed, they had destroyed the Liberal Party. In the same sense... Gladstone's mission to pacify Ireland was even less easy to realise. The pacification of Britain's curiously different neighbour was not something within the powers even of a political titan like William Gladstone. Instead, pacifying Ireland would prove next to impossible over the next century. While Gladstone was failing to implement by political means the reforms in Ireland that he so passionately desired, organisations within the island were forming that possessed as their goal the establishment of total Irish freedom by military means. The goals of these organisations were by no means new. In fact, they were mostly inspired by those that had already tried and failed in their rebellions against the British over the centuries. But their creators and descendants played a more significant role in shaping Irish history than any organisation before them. The years of the famine, wherein Ireland had been rocked by death and emigration on a terrible scale, and the political process undergone by reformers like Daniel O'Connell to implement Catholic emancipation, had been major events in their past that shaped their outlook on Ireland, as well as what it meant to be Irish. Every generation, it seemed, a doomed uprising of some sort was launched against the British establishment, and the most recent, by the 1850s, was the one that had occurred in 1848, and this inspired many to pledge their lives to the cause of war with Great Britain when it was viable, and when London was at its most vulnerable. Their end result was to be the 1916 Rising, to massively cut a long story short. But in the closing years of the 19th century, the men that led these organisations did not know what the future held for them. 
What they did know was that the political process was not enough, and that radical change could only come about with a dramatic appeal to arms. Okay, so let's stop beating around the bush. Who were these organisations? Well, almost simultaneously in the late 1850s, forces for militancy within Irish republicanism came together in both the United States and Ireland to form two groups which would become critical for the future of Irish independence. The first was the Fenian Brotherhood in the United States, created in New York by Irish expatriates who had fled British scrutiny and had planned to come together under the protection of relative American apathy. The second group didn't have the protection of American disinterestedness and formed the Irish Republican Brotherhood on home soil on St. Patrick's Day, 1858. In the years that followed, much planning was undertaken and administrative issues tackled. The structure of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and the Fenian Brotherhood was imagined as a hierarchy, with a president, a supreme council, sergeants and the rank and file constituting its organisation. Both the IRB, Irish Republican Brotherhood, and Fenian Brotherhood frequently traded resources and men over both sides of the Atlantic, and often plotted in unison. Little wonder that the British and Irish press came to label both groups or any individuals associated with them as simply Fenians, and for the sake of convenience, unless I state otherwise, we're going to do the same here for a while. Just as surely as members of the Irish Parliamentary Party were still referred to as home rulers by those who hadn't quite grasped the name change, so too were the terms Fenian, Republican and Nationalist used interchangeably over the coming years. Although military interests were their major focus, some elements of the Fenians in the early 1870s began to advocate cooperation with the burgeoning Home Rule Party and its parliamentary associations for the sake of Irish progress. The idea being, Fenians would still hold the plan for a great war against Britain close to heart, but in the meantime would seek to advance the cause of Irish freedom as far as was possible by political means. This interesting compromise was ended by the end of that decade of the 1870s though, despite the arrangement enjoying the support of Charles Stuart Parnell and a number of prominent Irish MPs and Republicans. The partnership between the political nationalist and physical force Republican elements of Irish society ended because the latter did not believe the former was doing enough to advance Irish freedoms while many in the Irish Parliamentary Party and Parnell's circle were uncomfortable about any association with the Fenians, particularly after the aforementioned murder of the Duke of Devonshire's brother in 1882. So the Fenians officially ended the partnership with Irish politicians, but they were having a hard time of it by the early 1880s themselves. British propaganda had helped to turn most of the Irish public against the Fenians, while the incorporation of the Catholic clergy as a partner with the British establishment to also denounce the ends and means of the Fenians dramatically reduced support for them at home. Some within the Fenian movement argued that conflict or sporadic campaigns in specialist areas did not produce any tangible results and that the Irish political process should instead be targeted. Matters were thus complicated because we begin to see a number of Fenians acting on their own initiative in Irish politics even though the official policy of the Fenians on both sides of the Atlantic was to abstain from any political partnership with the home rulers whatsoever. 
One such example of a Fenian acting on his own initiative is a man we'll come across a lot in this miniseries, Michael Davitt. In a lecture tour of the United States culminating in New York, IRB member Davitt passionately called for the IRB to nominate some of its own for the Home Rule Party so that stronger nationalists would be able to stand for Ireland in London and that genuine change would come about. Davitt's approach wasn't unique. What he desired was to find a third way between the kind of extreme republicanism that had defined the Fenians and the entitlement to political representation that Home Rule MPs enjoyed. Davitt and others believed that if given the chance, Fenians in Ireland could redefine the Home Rule Party from the ground up, and if they infiltrated it, they could force Westminster to change the way Ireland was governed by their sheer tenacity, the force of their arguments and the passion they had for staying true to their principles of Irish independence. The problem, of course, was that the Fenian organisations had outlawed any kind of fraternisation with the milk-drinking nationalists, but individual Fenians found ways to excuse themselves from this order by pointing to the tangible results that cooperation normally produced. And besides, the Home Rule Party was in need of safety. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Leaving, since many of its MPs, Davitt reasoned, had become imperialised by the influence of the British establishment, or had become soft by the corruption that this establishment enabled. The Home Rule Party, in other words, did not need to be cooperated with or destroyed. Instead, it had to be infiltrated. This was a lesson that the Fenians in Ireland would take to heart over the following years. In October 1879, despite the professed wishes of the Fenian hierarchy to do away with the partnership with Parnell and his associates, the Irish National Land League was founded in Dublin by IRB notable Michael Davitt, with Charles Stuart Parnell as its president. 
The League was an organisation established to support tenant farmers in the ongoing land war against their landlords, many of whom didn't even live on that land and had become absentee landlords. The land war was a bitter struggle between the small tenant farmers and those that owned the land, and it had been exacerbated by the decline in agricultural prices abroad and the resulting fall in the value of the produce that farmers created. This had knock-on effects for the farmers, whose produce was now worth less but had to pay more in order to hold the land, thanks to the knee-jerk reactions of the desperate, cash-strapped landlords, many of whom went bankrupt over the following years. In the face of rising land prices and an impossible situation, farmers were in despair until the whole issue caught the attention of first the Fenians, and then the Irish Parliamentary Party led by Parnell. Determined to do something for the sake of his fellow Irishmen, Parnell made the decision to add his considerable name power to the new organisation being set up by his now good friend Michael Davitt, and by so doing he set in motion yet another chapter in the saga of the Anglo-Irish feud. In an example which was typical of Irish problems, the land war started out small and regional, but soon developed into a situation which demanded British political attention. Cartoons of William Gladstone seated at his desk, looking over his shoulder nervously and hounded by an ominous-looking character meant to represent the Land League, demonstrated that Irish farmers had gained widespread attention. The silence or mere lip service which British MPs had paid to Irish land reform in the past was badly in need of changing and with Parnell mobilising the resources both of his own party and sympathetic notable Irish expatriates abroad, success soon came in waves. The Land League could be seen protesting in large numbers within earshot of the landlord's estates, for the purpose of protecting the tenant farmer in the event that he was to be evicted off his lands for want of payment. The Land League soon developed in its motives as well, and began to seek not just fairer, reduced wages, but the removal of the landlord and the transferal of the ownership of that land to the small farmer, rather than the absentee landlord. This radical change was wholly supported by the Fenians, of course, whose more politically-minded members viewed any prospect of increased Irish ownership of land with a romantic reverence. The Land League advocated cooperation among farmers and created a kind of farmer trade union in the process. By so doing, it gave farmers a stronger position to fight from and actually led to a greater politicisation among their class. As the protests continued, Parnell insisted that no violent means should be adopted, but inevitably some deaths and controversies occurred in the charged atmosphere. In attempts to politicise the struggle, in the early 1880s, Parnell, along with his colleagues, travelled to the United States, where they stayed in the company of prominent Fenians and Irish-Americans who heavily empathised with their cause. The pressure soon became intense for the British administration, and genuine land reform was finally passed in between elections in 1885 with the Ashbourne Act, a piece of legislation which would enable tenant farmers to purchase their land and would encourage landlords to sell up with attractive advantages if they did so. Though the most incredible piece of reform would not come until the 1903 Windham Land Purchase Act, which would essentially destroy the system of gigantic estates and absentee landlords that Ireland had become known for, 
handing land power back to the local Irish in the process, the Ashbourne Act was a critical first step. What was more, it had proved to both Charles Stuart Parnell and the now politically minded Fenians that politics could work. It seemed Parnell had gotten a taste for political agitation, and in a bid to appear more active to some of his Fenian sympathisers, he founded the Irish National League in 1882, once the Land League had been outlawed by London that same year. Parnell's new organisation achieved the Ashbourne Act that we just looked at three years later, but Parnell had set his sights on new goals by 1885, and inserted within the manifesto of this new Irish National League a professed desire to see home rule be achieved. It is handy to think of the Irish National League as the kind of arm or body of the Irish Parliamentary Party that actually got stuff done in Ireland, since IPP MPs were preoccupied with actually standing in Westminster and rarely had time to campaign for change at home. While I agree, it is... Somewhat annoying to see so many leagues and organisations pop up. Try your best to stay with me. Parnell created the INL to capitalise on the success and reputation that the now illegal Land League had gained, and then he aimed to use the Irish National League for his own ends by making that league appear more approachable and identifiable with the common man, since the outlawed Land League was seen more as the kind of farmer's group, if that makes sense. The Irish National League professed to want to change Ireland by political means, but because it was seen to deal with issues on the ground like land reform, and because it opened a raft of constituency halls throughout the country, it remained a separate but still essential aspect of the Irish Parliamentary Party's strategy. The Irish National League also came to enjoy massive support from the Catholic Church, another critical aspect of Irish society and a pillar of the Irish Parliamentary Party, that ensured its MPs were reinforced with extra support from home. Since the Irish Parliamentary Party made use of the Irish National League as its de facto political membership organisation on the ground in Ireland, and since Parnell essentially led both groups, the man soon began to accumulate a lot of power in the British Isles. With two political groups that were actively seen to be doing something, in the form of the Irish National League and the Irish Parliamentary Party, It was harder for some Fenians to justify the split that was supposed to be ongoing between their militant organisations and the more moderate Irish nationalists. Many extremist republicans had simply ignored the directives given by the Fenian hierarchy and had forged their own personal relationships with people like Parnell. In a way, it is hard to define organisations like the Irish Republican Brotherhood or Fenian Brotherhood in this period as standing determinedly this way or that because, as we've seen, their members would chop and change depending on the circumstances, much like Parnell himself would claim to abhor violence one minute only to associate himself with rioting farmers the next. Both segments of Ireland are important if we are to understand the Irish story, but it's important not to put either grouping in boxes. While they may have defined themselves as moderate, nationalist or militant republican, members from both sides chose aspects they liked or didn't like from either side, and they adapted to the circumstances and seized opportunities when they presented themselves. They were forced to, after all. Men like Michael Davitt, who founded the Land League, or James Stevens, who founded the Irish Republican Brotherhood in Ireland, were by their own definition Republicans, 
Yet both individuals dabbled in the political process when the opportunity arose to make a difference through it, and both were not against the idea of aligning themselves to MPs like Parnell for their own ends. It wasn't, in other words, black and white, at least for the moment. If anything had been learned from the 1870s and 80s, it was that the political process could achieve reforms and genuine results thanks to the actions of the Irish National League. Irish farmers could now conceivably buy their own land. Thanks to the Irish Parliamentary Party, Irish members of the United Kingdom now had better political representation and could look forward to an increase in Irish economic, political and societal reforms. In addition, because the landscape of British politics continued to change with the Liberal Unionists, politicians like Parnell found themselves thrust to the forefront of the British establishment thanks to their possession of the balance of power within the House of Commons. Parnell had been willing to use politics to a point, but he had then accepted that change would not come from Westminster, and thus had made use of his allies at home to bring it about himself, not to mention create a ton of new groups in the process. In this process, Parnell had cemented his own legend, and he had taught British MPs that Ireland could not be ignored. Parnell also liked to hope that he had taught extremists the value of the political process, and that politics could work in Ireland for the Irish people. A small issue like Irish land reform that apparently nobody within the walls of Westminster cared about had gone on to become one of the defining issues of Britain for much of the 1880s, even causing spin-off movements in Scotland where land reform was also badly needed, with the Crofters Party and Highland Land League becoming the results. Parnell's success in this venture imbued him with confidence, rightfully so, and he sought to turn this political capital into further results with the utilisation of the public support gained from the Irish National League to bring about home rule in Ireland at last. Just as he seemed on the cusp of forcing through such a reform though, disaster struck in Parnell's private life. The unfortunate reaction to revelations that Parnell had been having an affair with a now-divorced Anglo-Irish lady and had fathered three children with her actually led to a split in the Irish Parliamentary Party between those that identified themselves either as Parnellites or anti-Parnellites in late 1890. The split came not so much from his colleagues abhorring of what he did in his private life but from the damage done to his moral reputation by such actions and the condemnation by the Catholic Church that followed. With both the Catholic hierarchy and Gladstone himself warning that they could not in good confidence support the Irish Parliamentary Party if Parnell remained on as leader, a crisis seemed to be afoot. And many of the public in Ireland turned against their great benefactor with a breathtaking fickleness. Refusing to back down to the threats from the Catholic Church or Glasdon and insisting that Irish Home Rule could not be blocked by either element, Parnell stubbornly remained as leader of the Irish National League, and blocked any motion to remove him as leader, since he was president, when the group met in mid-December 1890. Aghast at this, over half of the members of the Irish National League walked out of the meeting, determined to reclaim the support of the organisations that the party had lost and to retain the semblance that that party had enjoyed as one which represented Ireland's people. Among those that left Parnell was Michael Davitt, 
the man who had established the original Land League and who had once been Parnell's close friend. The bitterness which this rift in Irish politics had opened up was not long to last, though, mainly because, despite his continued energy and determination to salvage what remained of his party's support, Charles Stuart Parnell was a dying man. Over the course of spring 1891, Parnell did not give up. He continued to represent the Irish National League in tours of the country designed to recoup his reputation and momentum, but the heart of the movement had been torn out, and that heart was about to die. On the 6th of October 1891, in the grip of pneumonia and in the late stages of kidney disease, Parnell died in the arms of Kate O'Shea, the infamous mistress with whom he had had that rapturous affair with for the past decade, but who had lately become his wife. At the age of 45, Ireland's brightest political light had gone out. With his death, the Irish National League became paralysed, and in time its remaining leadership would make the decision to re-emerge with the temporary anti-Parnellite faction known as the Irish National Federation in the year 1900. This reunion with Irish groupings from both sides of Ireland's political spectrum meant that a reinvigoration of the Irish Parliamentary Party was possible just at the point when its influence was to become profound yet again. So how do we judge the life of someone like Charles Stuart Parnell, and more importantly, where does he fit into a mini-series like this, which is supposed to cover the Easter Rising, after all? Parnell was in a sense the political successor to Daniel O'Connell, insofar as he sought to achieve by political means the reforms and changes which could never be achieved by force. O'Connell had brought in Catholic Emancipation, an act which allowed Catholic MPs to sit in Westminster, but he had proved powerless to bring about change to Irish land law. Similarly, Parnell had achieved the successes that had eluded O'Connell in land reform, freeing scores of Irish farmers in the process from their plight, but home rule had remained out of his reach. Perhaps if he hadn't died so young, we could be talking about how home rule was the next great reform Parnell brought in. Perhaps if that was the case... His statue at the end of O'Connell Street in Dublin would be even bigger. Perhaps had he lived, the passing of Home Rule would have removed the need for the Easter Rising in 1916. Perhaps, but Parnell's failure handed the baton to other Irish MPs, men like John Redmond and John Dillon, who had taken active roles in Irish politics when Parnell's party had split in 1890. Their reconciliation into the newly united Irish Parliamentary Party promised great things for Irish political progress once more. But none of those promises would have even been possible without the original achievements of Charles Stuart Parnell. F.S.L. Lyons, Parnell's biographer, wrote in 1973 that Parnell gave his people back their self-respect. He did this by rallying an inert and submissive peasantry to believe that by organised and disciplined protest they could win a better life for themselves and their children. He did it further and still more strikingly by demonstrating that even a small Irish party could disrupt the business of the greatest legislature in the world and, by a combination of skill and tenacity, 
could deal on equal terms with, and eventually hold the balance of power between, the two major English parties. Essentially, this is the crux of what I've been trying to communicate here. Parnell worked in tandem with men like Gladstone, and formed invaluable relationships with other Irish MPs and even Fenians, whose help he made great use of over the years. Parnell's crowning achievement wasn't his success in getting reforms through, necessarily. In my opinion, it instead was the fact that Parnell forced Britain to sit up and take notice, to pay attention to the island next door to them and actually implement reforms there instead of dragging their heels as they intended to do. Furthermore, Parnell achieved this wake-up call not with a campaign of violence, but by empowering the Irish farmer and labourer, by speaking to those across the country's religious and political spectrum, and by co-opting support from critical pillars of Irish society, like the Catholic Church. Considering this, where Parnell fits into this mini-series is the lessons he leaves us, and the lessons he left those that followed him. No matter how small you are, no matter what issue you stand for, you can, through peaceful means, make a difference here. Make use of your allies, lean on your friends and forge useful political relationships, but above all, rely on the political process and the value of political pressure to achieve your ends. Parnell, through politics, just like O'Connell before him, had achieved leagues more than any radical Republican with a gun ever had, and this was a lesson to be learned by the Fenians as well. As their on-off relationship of cooperation with Parnell demonstrated, they had seen the value of politics, and some had even been persuaded to leave the Fenian movement altogether. Unfortunately for Irish politics, what Parnell failed to do was leave behind a true successor. If Home Rule was to be left to subsequent Irish MPs, Parnell had not significantly nominated or found any MP of this kind up to the task. This was, of course, due to external and internal factors within the Irish political landscape as well, to be sure. But the undeniable fact of the two decades after Parnell's death was that reform notably slowed. With this slowing came the resurgence of an impatience within the Fenian movements, as a desire once again to resort to arms became the dominant ethos. Where once cooperation and compromise had seemed possible with Parnell, without Parnell, the pillars of Irish society in its nationalist and republican ideologies drifted further apart, never to cooperate so closely again. Individuals like John Redmond and John Dillon would continue the political fight, but they were hampered by an increasingly militant atmosphere, and the insistence of the Fenians that the pen was not mightier than the sword. In the next episode we will trace the origins of the Fenian societies which we've met in this episode, what inspired them, who led them, what they aimed to achieve. It will be an important episode to build a picture of the other pillar of Irish activism before 1916. So I hope you'll join us then. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.